This episode is brought to you by Quarter. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. Quarter's first mission is to enable access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports as frictionless as possible, straight to your pocket. I started using Quarter and I've never looked back. You can think of Quarter as the Spotify for all investor conference calls that you can think of. You can type in the ticker of whatever company you want, say it's Etsy, and you can get a list of all of their recent earnings calls and inside the earnings calls, you can listen and click the PDF and it'll show you investor presentations or prepared remarks that you can read alongside listening. The best part is, is you can choose the speeds. You can have 1x, 1.2, 1.5, which is my favorite. And you can star companies, make them your favorites, and you'll get notifications for new conference calls and they'll be right at the top of your app. So there's five key points to remember about Quarter. First, it's 100% free. They include companies from 12 markets and plan to add more over the, over the coming year. They prioritize requested companies, which you can do in the app, and they have a lot more in store. So check them out on wherever app store you have. It's Q-U-A-R-T-R. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This week, I have a really special guest, Omri Velvarth of Legacy Value Partners. Uh, Legacy invests, um, they have a value investing approach at the age of acceleration. That's kind of their their tagline here. Um, so today I'm talking um, to uh, Omri about all things tech investing, uh, specifically in areas that he invests, which is Tel Aviv and Israel. So Israel-based companies, both at the um, you know, maybe at the earlier stages, late stages, public companies, private companies, kind of what he's seen all in in the Israeli investing landscape um, to really have a boots on the ground uh, view of things. And I think Omri, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that is this your first like English only podcast interview? Because I tried looking you up. Uh, yes. And yes, I saw I a bunch of ones in um, I think it was Hebrew. Like there was a podcast that was that was, that was in Hebrew, and I obviously couldn't understand it. So I don't all know right. if I could find so it. For- First of all, uh, good for you. I mean, for finding the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew uh, pods. Yes, I've been to several pods in Hebrew, but this is my first uh, English one. Uh, we we did uh, present several times in the, the excellent uh, Manual of Ideas uh, conferences in English. Uh, you, I mean, any of the listeners are uh, interested, they can look it look this up. Um, but uh, yeah, pod for pod related uh, things. It's the first uh, time, so uh, yeah, very yeah, excited. Always, very excited always, it always gets me excited to kind of be like the first podcast. I mean, just I guess from a selfish perspective, is 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 to have someone um, that's kind of doing their first English facing interview, and we can dive right in because again, I don't know much about you. I don't know much about Legacy Value Partners because a lot of it is. So for those unfamiliar about Omri, you can follow them on Twitter. You can follow their Legacy Value Partners account on Twitter as well. I'll put all the links in the in the show notes. A lot of it is in non English, and so this is a great opportunity for for kind of someone. Well, um... Yeah, I do. I do write most of my writing, most of my Twitter, uh, my Twitter writing and action is uh, is on English. Uh, it's important for me, you know, to 
not uh, not from a marketing standpoint actually more than more from a research standpoint to be you know part of the global Twitter community yeah so uh, and I like English you know English most of the time sounds better in investment uh, in the investment uh, landscape uh, you can express yourself better with English uh, when you want to you know uh, go deep into into things. So uh, yeah, I like I like it. I mean, I like to, to write in English and most of, most of my writing is again in English, but it doesn't mean that my English is a native level. so you know uh, <laughs> fewer. <laughs> so how did you get started investing Omri and where did where did that passion begin? Well, um, I, I actually my, my uh, you know my road to starting a hedge fund um, well I was kind of not that original, but uh, a little bit more uh, different than you know the regular uh, going to like uh, be in in a BA business or in economy, uh, and then uh, MBA working for an asset manager and you know starting a hedge fund. It, is, it wasn't my uh, my journey. Uh, I'm actually uh, a lawyer. Uh, it's not something that I write <laughs> by myself a lot these days, but uh, I'm a lawyer. I studied in, you know, a uh, pretty prestigious university here in Israel, uh, but uh, decided not to, not to continue you know, with, the, with the profession. Um, even before, even before starting to study my academic uh, studies, I got into uh, the entire value investing thinking, and, and it wasn't even from from stocks, from stock uh, narrative. You know, finding stock, finding the best stock, uh, trying to win, trying to earn money. It was, uh, I think, from a pure uh, then pure, I mean, uh, business uh, curiosity. Uh, starting from my late uh, being, you know, like a, a young uh, teenager, I was uh, really curious about uh, businesses, how they function, how they win, how they lose. And uh, this is what led me, you know, to Warren Buffett. Uh, Charlie Munger, uh, like everyone else, I mean, the, 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 this was the you know my starting, uh, my starting, my starting point in the investment world, and uh, then came uh, 2008, you know, the the GFC Great Financial Crisis. Uh, it was a huge catalyst for me. Uh, I was uh, 25, 25 years old then. I'm 38 years old today, and. Um, here in Israel, we, we haven't felt it in the exact same way, obviously, as you in the States uh, have. Uh, it wasn't that uh, harmful here because, uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the central bank here was very fast to act and uh, et cetera. And, uh, but uh, what it did to, to the stocks, or to the, to the cap, to capital markets, it was uh, it was uh, very well uh, felt. So um, 
but you know all all of these are you know wide and uh, big things and big picture things but my personal small picture uh, narrative is that uh, my family needed uh, you know someone to take care of the the modest uh, family savings and I mean my parents actually when I was like 25 years old and uh, they got burned from the legacy uh, asset uh, management uh, industry in Israel which is uh, it well then it was really bad today it's it's better I think but still uh, not good enough most of the time I think for retail investors so uh, you know I took control I took control of the personal uh, savings started to, to gain knowledge it was a huge catalyst for me and you know a few years later uh, some friends wanted to join in and I started like a, a pilot with friends and family and uh, almost a decade later in 2016 I felt ready to, to launch my uh, my hedge fund legacy value partners and uh, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't easy obviously it's never easy to, to, to start a business but uh, when you start a hedge fund without a significant uh, a significant uh, seed investment, a significant uh, partner from the asset management uh, industry that can lead you know investors to investors to you, and you rely only on friends and, fam and family, and uh, so it, it can be very challenging, and, and it actually was. So uh, combine that with my uh, then deep value approach, circa 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, extremely tough years for deep value investors. Uh, some some really great, I think, hedge fund managers got burned actually in this uh, environment back then. When I remember that uh, you know quality investments started to really uh, to really uh, depart themselves from the value investments, and tech started to really you know gain uh, momentum, and uh, it was really it was really hard really a really hard time for me you know as a 50 50 deep value investor and quality investor and uh, i also find myself uh, enjoying way more uh, from uh, analyzing quality so uh, circa 2019 i you know declare a uh, a strategy shift in my fund. I mean, I well, I communicated that to investors, and we went uh, like a, more of a pure uh, quality play, and which is a very uncommon. Uh, it's a very uncommon uh, strategy for it by itself in Israel. I mean. We have you know, like long short equity or uh, 
some momentum strategies uh, are, are pretty uh, common here, but uh, telling to investors that we're going for quality, we're going to hold names for three, four, five years, hopefully, and um, this is what we're going to do. I mean, I believe I have an advantage here with this company. I understand its quality way better than uh, the markets. And uh, from a marketing standpoint, as a young hedge fund, it's, uh, it can be pretty challenging. It still is, actually. I mean, we went, uh, we, had a, we had very good growth over the past uh, two years. I'm very happy from where we are today at Legacy, but uh, it is still not, not easy, not easy to, to you know, to, 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 to market with this kind of uh, strategy. I mean, the strategy that tells investors that, yeah, not actually thinking if I'm buying it for something for 30 cents on the dollar or 60 cents on the dollar, I just know that I buy a, an extremely wide moat. I pay, I pay a reasonable price for it. And uh, I have good reason to believe that I possess an advantage as an investor in this, uh, in this holding. And uh, what it is something that most of the time is, is uh, qualitative. Okay, it's a qualitative advantage that I uh, gather and possess. And uh, it's not easy almost to show it like by numbers. This is why uh, when you're looking at the entire, uh, the entire uh, no valuation industry, valuation consulting, and I used to work for a management consulting firm, but also they were, some very large valuation works here in the, the Israeli economy, like uh, roads, bridges, uh, etc. So valuation-wise, uh, for a, for evaluation consultant can go to court and you know just uh, talk about quality. No one cares. <laughs> so uh, there's there's this is there's... this is the environment. This is the environment that we need to, to add, but uh, you know, hopefully the results uh, will take us to where we want to, uh, to arrive. Yeah, there's a lot to pull from that. But the first thing I want to discuss is, and you, you, you mentioned this yourself, where I think it was what, around 2017, 2018, or maybe even 2019, you made that strategy shift from deep value to a more qualitative, um, you know, buying great companies at reasonable prices strategy. How much pushback, if any, did you get from your LPs at the time? And then what was that pushback centered around? Was it, you know, hey, we invested because we thought you were going to do this strategy. And now you're saying you're doing something completely different. We don't know if that aligns with what we want like what kind of pushback did you receive yes um first it's it's important to note that my investors then were mainly friends and family mainly friends of friends you know but uh, this is how you start and uh, i i had like i don't know maybe uh, 15 lps or 20 lps back then and uh, i mean they invested in me they invested in someone that they 
came to uh, acknowledge that has uh, pretty good, uh, you know, insights and uh, is uh, conservative enough for them, is responsible. They, they, they look at him as responsible to, you know, take care of their uh, assets. And, uh, but, uh, you know, they wanted, investors want to, to want to see results. And Legacy, my fund, it went like uh, the first three years. The results were okay, but not uh, not uh, overperformance, mm -hmm. uh, and it can be a very problematic thing to uh, to a young hedge fund. You know what they say uh, that you when you in life. I mean, you want to be uh, young, rich, uh, pretty, <laughs> and uh, healthy, obviously. So when you start an when you start an hedge fund, and you know you come from nothing. I mean, you come from uh, you are one hundred percent bootstrapping. Uh, you want to uh, make thirty five percent year one, thirty five percent year two. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is this is a cruel this is a cruel uh, this is a cruel environment. This is a cruel uh, thing to say to think to to, to think even, but. Uh, you know, it's it's such a huge and uh, and fragmented industry, and uh, the barriers to entry, like to found an to found a, an investment uh, firm, are very low. The barriers to succeed are high, but right. when you're in when in an industry that is built like that. Especially today, especially in the digital uh, era, uh, you have to succeed, and uh, you have to show that uh, you have merit. You have merit to act. You have merit to 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 to, to raise money. You know, and you 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 can do things different. You can do things better from way larger uh, players in your industry. Uh, but uh, putting that aside, we live in, uh, we act in an industry, uh, the asset management industry that has uh, an amazing, an amazing advantage to being small. So, uh, especially in Israel, and we will talk about the Israeli uh, market in a bit, uh, especially in Israel, being small, is a major advantage if you know how to to use it, because uh, this is a, a controlling stake, a controlling stake and controlling families uh, stock market. Most of the interesting companies have uh, huge insiders uh, holding and. Um, the float many times is uh, pretty narrow and a lot of times, you know, it's like you can find like a, an awesome niche company who controls a, a very nice uh, era of the Israeli economy, uh, quality management, quality uh, moat, and um, the float would be, I mean, market cap can even be like above uh, 
half a billion dollars, mm-hmm. but uh, the float sometimes can be like 150 million. Okay, like 30% uh, float. Or, or in the true float, if sometimes it's even smaller because uh, some of the public investors are, uh, you know, pension funds, funds yeah. will never sell. Right. So uh, this is a very attractive uh, world to, 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 to be a small hedge fund in, if you know how to, how to play it and how to, what to look for. And uh, fortunately, we were, we were able to, you know, gain to do very good in this uh, environment here in Israel. So this is why I uh, keep investing here. Mm-hmm. The Israeli market and not uh, focusing only on you know global tech right. and global and US and sometimes Israeli tech, but it's not my only uh, main of uh, action because the, the advantages here in Israel are too uh, too big to ignore for me. Yeah, and I think a great way to maybe um, put a bow on your investment philosophy at Legacy Value Partners is to discuss your investment in Salesforce, um, ticker symbol CRM, which you've written about, you've tweeted about pretty extensively. Um, you know, just, well, first of all, you know, let us, let us know if you, if you guys still own it. But before that, what made you interested in Salesforce? What did you see at the time that you were getting interested? And then what insights did you develop that led to that high conviction that you had about the company? Yes. Um, well, it's it's funny, you know. After we spoke about uh, being small, we're now going to talk about uh, one of Huge the company. a mega a mega tech. One of the one of one of, in my opinion, one of the few true mega techs of the world. Yeah. And this is part of my thesis that the investment world and the markets still don't truly get that Salesforce is a mega tech company. I mean, it's a mega tech company that you should talk about almost, and I'm, yeah, almost, okay, not maybe entirely, but almost as you talk about Google, Microsoft, Facebook, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. But some of them are also investments of ours, especially Facebook, where we have a large position. But uh, this is the world, you know, we live in. Sometimes we talk about, we, we look at uh, small investment, uh, Israeli uh, Three hundred million dollars market caps, and also we can get we can gather a, a conviction in Salesforce, which is a huge company. Mm-hmm. Um, Salesforce obviously, you know, doesn't need the introduction. I mean, it's one of the most famous uh, software companies in the world. Um, but uh, what is important to to to, to say? But Salesforce isn't a sales software company anymore. I mean, sales software is where the company started and pioneered 22 years ago. And it was one of the first true SaaS software as a service companies in the world. And, and, to the, and then become one of the first cloud software companies. And uh, it's, it is a native cloud, almost, uh, software company 
which is, uh, gave it huge advantages over the first decade of uh, cloud software. And, and Benioff and partners, they took that initial advantage and, and just uh, never stopped. They never stopped building, never stopped uh, reinvesting. And uh, that approach, that strategy brought them to where they are today. Uh, a massive company with, which will make, uh, I think, like $25 billion of uh, revenues in 2021. One of the most predictable companies. Mm. Okay, 15 years of sequential quarter over quarter growth. Okay, you, you can find it. You can, you can make it, this things up because it truly is uh, one of a kind. Uh, and uh, with this kind of uh, predictability and this kind of uh, growth and this kind of uh, time expansion, and the company uh, is expanding its time, total reversal market like uh, every year. And they took this, you know, major uh, business strength of them uh, a decade ago and uh, started to reinvest aggressively in uh, growth opportunities, like going to new business lines, going to new uh, geographies, obviously, and uh, especially investing in becoming more than a front-end uh, software player. And they wanted to be uh, closer to the Microsoft and um, the AWSs of the world. They wanted to be a, a software country. Okay, they wanted to be a software, I don't know, small continent even. But things happen uh, on their uh, network and on their uh, platform. Uh, that are bigger than that are bigger than, than Salesforce itself, and uh, they did it. Uh, they, they they had a major success in this field, and today Salesforce is probably you know take the public clouds, uh, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud uh, out of the equation. Software is the uh, Salesforce is the largest uh, business software uh, distributor in the world. Mm -hmm. More than 4,500 uh, companies and apps are distributing through the Salesforce uh, app exchange market marketplace, and um, obviously Salesforce takes its cut. And you no, know, we we all know how these uh, app stores work. And, mm -hmm the advantages of having a, such a robust and powerful app store. But uh, Salesforce didn't stop there. They took this uh, distribution muscle. And uh, first of all, they always keep pushing on distribution. Mm -hmm. And they use it to, uh, they build an investment arm that is using this data, you know, that they see on their distribution network, and they use it to uh, reinvest. Mm -hmm. How? To reinvest in M&A, uh, to reinvest in uh, venture capital. They are probably 
the most successful corporate venture capitalists uh, outside of China, especially in business-oriented uh, software. Uh, they were like early investors in uh, Zoom and in Dropbox and the list goes on. Uh, actually, what really took me uh, to invest in Salesforce was, uh, you know, starting uh, 2020, their uh, Snowflake story. Uh, Snowflake, uh, we all know, uh, right now is a public company, more than $80 billion uh, market cap. Mm -hmm. But in uh, February 2020, and uh, no one outside of the you know true data uh, software uh, geeks heard about Snowflake, mm -hmm. and uh, Snowflake wanted to uh, distribute through uh, Salesforce, and they wanted to get uh, like the, the VIP uh, the VIP tag, you know, from uh, from Salesforce. So um, Snowflake back then was and still had major major growth. And they really, you know, suited by uh, the most prestigious uh, VCs and etc. And they didn't need the money, okay? But Salesforce demanded, uh, and this is, it's not like a rumor, it's something that Snowflake CEO said mm -hmm. uh, in several conferences when he was asked about it. Salesforce demanded to get an equity stake in Snowflake as a part of the distribution deal. And they did get it in a $12 billion valuation. Wow. Okay, so uh, it's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story uh, to think about a company that uh, you know, capital markets still see as a, a growth story of a SaaS software, which is, a very nice place to be, but uh, you know it's not megatech. Okay, if we talk about megatechs, we want to again have software little continents, right? But uh, if you are, if you have the most robust business software distribution muscle, and uh, that uh, this this uh, this power of yours is getting. Uh, is being proved by, I mean, market players like new vendors like Snowflake and uh, your VC uh, success. So uh, it puts you in a very unique position, I think, in, 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 the, in the software world, the software world. And now take to this equation, think about another thing. Uh, Salesforce almost doesn't suffer from regulation, from uh, you know antitrust regulation, and, and obviously in 2021 it's a major, major, major deal. Mm -hmm. Salesforce has the financial uh, strength of a megatech. Okay, it it, uh, it generates huge amount of uh, cash, which will probably just getting started to you know really gain momentum it's cash, mm -hmm. cash generation yeah and they have a, an excellent proprietary data almost microsoft google amazon level on 
enterprise software. And uh, in some cases more, I mean better than, uh, than this, uh, these guys. Uh, obviously they have uh, access to capital, you know, to raise that and they use it, they do it. They don't afraid of, from it. I mean, they want to be uh, net debt, not uh, net cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think for a SaaS company, for, for someone with the SaaS uh, cash generation uh, abilities, it's a, it's a very good thing that management sees business like that, that you need to be net debt. Take all of that and put it on uh, them becoming a reinvestment machine through M&As and uh, through organic uh, investments. And I mean, it's it's almost a license to kill. Yeah, I think for Salesforce. Yeah, no, I can, I can. Very unique. Pro, pro, probably the the only the only play of the kind. I mean, with a true license to kill through reinvestment, uh, regulation, financial, regulation wise, financial wise, uh, business wise, moat wise. I mean, they can invest. They can they can invest. Uh, Inside the remote, I mean, to the remote, I mean, to, to increase it, to, 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 to make it wider, mm-hmm. uh, a very unique place to be. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendously fascinating company, and I appreciate you kind of breaking that down for us. Um, I want to I pivot now to another kind of investment thesis that you have over at Legacy Value, which is um, identifying the most valuable part of a value chain. And uh, then once you identify that value chain and that cog that is um, called the most profitable or the most promising, you go in and then invest in that. So can you give us maybe an example on a high level of, of kind of what this value chain analysis means and then um, something a little bit more granular on, on, on how to apply it from an investing perspective? Uh, yeah. Now, I... I mean, when when we invest like in a, in a certain uh, niche or a certain uh, sector, uh, we usually do it because we think it's a it's an attractive sector. Obviously, sometimes it does like uh, secular uh, growth engines. Uh, sometimes it has like a regulation shift. Uh, technological shift, like SaaS software, when the public clouds started to really, you know, uh, invest hard in uh, infrastructure. So the SaaS software suddenly became a a, a really attractive uh, sector to be because uh, the entire economics of uh, founding a a successful uh, software service uh, company uh, changed. Now, uh, I, I I want to take it when when I look for for investments. I want to take this uh, you know this uh, thinking of in sector in sectors and in niches to uh, the next level. The next level for me is looking at the value chain at a certain sector or a certain niche, and you know don't just we we are stock pickers i mean if i want to to have like between 12 to 15 positions in legacy and i want to be concentrated and i even uh, way more concentrated in my top five positions so i need to invest in the best business by quality uh, that i can find and i 
I would like that uh, my uh, my investments will control the the more the more attractive uh, layer of the value chain. Uh, obviously, it, it can be very tricky at times because you need to get it right. You need to get it right, and when you don't get it right, uh, things can can you know go the other way. But uh, when, when you do get it right, you can you can you know uh, copycat this. Uh, when you when you truly find and you can truly understand which is the the, the most attractive part in the value chain, you can you can take this uh, through uh, this new this new knowledge, this new uh, insights you gather, and you know and just uh, use them. To other investments, and uh, I think a very good example is the the e-commerce, the e-commerce sector. Now, uh, obviously, e-commerce is a very interesting. You know, it, it's attra it, it's attracting the huge money from VCs, from uh, from the public markets, and uh, I believe that you know when you look at e-commerce, you have like uh, you have Amazon. Which is an integrated player, obviously. It's huge. It's almost a two trillion dollar market cap, and you know at least half of it is uh, Amazon uh, commerce. Uh, the other is obviously AWS. But uh, the anti-Amazon uh, alliance, this is how uh, Shopify, uh, Toby Lutke uh, calls it. It's thousands of companies, you know. It's a company like Shopify that give you the uh, web infrastructure to, 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 to open a web shop, to open an e-commerce uh, business. <coughs> it's uh, companies that give you uh, logistics uh, services and logistics uh, hubs, sometimes software hubs, but you can like uh, stamp.com, uh, for example, just got acquired like two weeks ago, and uh, it's obviously uh, the FedEx and UPS and DHLs of the world are extremely important to do to 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 this uh, value chain, you know, to the anti-Amazon uh, value chain, and uh, the list goes on. Uh, I believe that the most attractive layer of this uh, value chain is by far. Uh, demand, the, the demand generation uh, layer. How do I know that? Because I look at Amazon. I look at Amazon and what we see is that Amazon is putting a major, major, major uh, uh, light or, you know, it's in, in, in the center of what they're doing in commerce. Uh, to make their uh, advertisement uh, services better. And um, obviously, advertisement is growing like weed in Amazon, like 60, 78% uh, a year over the past uh, three or four years. And we know it's very profitable. We don't know the exact numbers, but it's probably like a between 40 to 50 percent uh, EBITDA margin business. And uh, we see how Amazon invests in uh, being able to uh, 
to be closer to to uh, to the to the crowd you know they invest uh, in twitch <coughs> sorry they invest uh, they're investing in uh, streaming they're investing in uh, in uh, in the amazon fire which is a Roku competitor uh, they want to be uh, closer to uh, top of the funnel they go they want to go upper in the funnel in the e-commerce funnel to uh, against the gain momentum in what they probably see as a very attractive part of the e-commerce value chain and when you look at when you think about it like that then you look at the largest demand generation business in the world which is facebook and uh, you understand that facebook isn't a new player in the e-commerce uh, in the e-commerce uh, sector facebook is the second strongest e-commerce company in the world mm -hmm. if you look at what's what is really important in in the value chain because I believe we don't have the exact number, but if you, you know, some research uh, suggests that uh, e-commerce uh, e commerce revenues are uh, around 30% of current Facebook uh, revenues. And in the US, it's even more. And the US is the most profitable part of Facebook. I think it, it's safe to say that uh, Facebook and Amazon uh, are generating pretty pretty similar amount of uh, EBITDA from commerce. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I, you know, take a billion here, a billion there. <laughs> These are huge businesses, but yeah. when you when you truly you know get inside these value chains and. Uh, understand that uh, if Shopify has uh, more than one billion, one, $100 billion of uh, GMV, you know, a lot of uh, commerce activities happening on Shopify, but it has only like 2.5% uh, take rate, mm -hmm. someone is taking, <laughs> is taking something. And I, I think this, this someone is Facebook. And uh, Brandon, I read your tweets. I know that <laughs> you think that people are talking too much about Facebook. Uh, so I, I, I do use Facebook, you know, uh, even uh, even when I talk with uh, you know my LPs and my prospective uh, limited partners. Mm -hmm. Facebook is an investment of ours from uh, 2017, actually. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, we still hold it. Yep, it's, it's a it's a large position. <laughs> And uh, actually, in 2017, no one thought about uh, e-commerce and Facebook. Mm -hmm. But uh, today, it's uh, getting to be a, a huge part, probably the most important part of the Facebook uh, business story. And uh, when you think about the e-commerce uh, industry, the e-commerce sector, as a in value chain, in value chain, uh, in a value chain narrative. Uh, you're starting to understand why Facebook is today more than one trillion dollar company, and I think I think it's still pretty earlier there. And now take this, you know, take this knowledge 
that we you know gather through research and it it can help you think about uh, other parts uh, other companies that uh, that might enjoy this this uh, this uh, insights you know if you if you apply this insight of them you find that they might be pretty attractive I mean we won't go right now to all all the names but uh, you know, not only in e-commerce actually. If you if you if you're good in the demand generation, and if you have a stable and growing demand generation uh, muscle, uh, you will do really good. I mean, think about even you know just just like from you know uh, from the top of my head, like Live Nation Entertainment. You know, the the the, the huge uh, live uh, music uh, player. The largest in the world, I think, like twenty to twenty-five percent market share, yeah. and uh, they're making their money through advertisements. I mean, they 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 manage to 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 create a major major uh, demand generation uh, muscle through more than one hundred million people, mm-hmm. circa two thousand nineteen, obviously not today, that are going to their uh, platform. And uh, this this muscle brought them to to you know to advertisers to 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 create demand to create quality demand to advertisers and it became really profitable for them the most profitable part of Live Nation by far so uh, yeah this this approach is very interesting to think about it that way yeah and if 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 we kind of invert that question. And, you know, suggest, okay, what are some ways in which you can make mistakes analyzing value chains? And then the second order effect of that question is, okay, if you make an error analyzing which part is the most valuable in that, in that value chain, what are the consequences of that? So um, have you had any examples in your investment career where you've mis, um, miscalculated what the most valuable or most important part of a value chain is, and then and then what are what are those consequences? I mean, I assume some of them include you know a poor investment, but is it is it is it more than that, or is it or is it maybe a little bit more nuanced than than just a bad investment result? Yes. Um, well, I I think I I have two that I want to talk about. Um, the first one is something that I is a sector, but I haven't really invested. Fortunately, uh, when uh, things got pretty weird to followers of the sector, I'm talking about the semiconductor uh, sector, mm-hmm. that uh, these days we do have investments over there. But uh, what happened in this sector? I mean, what over the past like six or seven years, most of us, you know, uh, investors. Uh, that investors, uh, professional hedge fund manager, quality hedge fund manager, long only hedge fund manager, uh, we all started to look for asset like businesses, right? Mm-hmm. This is like you know uh, one of the one of the the largest uh, jewels on on, yeah. on the crown of being like a modern uh, you know quality and value investor. So uh, in the semiconductor uh, sector. It was pretty pretty obvious, like three or four or five years ago, that uh, you want to look for the asset light uh, businesses or 
you want to invest maybe in Intel, which is an integrated, it's the Amazon of the semiconductor world in some ways. It's the most integrated player. I mean, they have uh, everything. They have right. their own IP, they, have, they design, they market, they custom, uh, and they produce through a huge investments in uh, fabs. And, uh, or you wanted to invest in like uh, things like, you know, that are truly asset light, truly like uh, IP focus, intangible focus, like uh, ARM, Mm-hmm. Uh, that SoftBank uh, bought in 2016, or uh, players like Qualcomm, and uh, these names haven't done that that well over the past five years. I mean, right. um, like is almost like a flat until that SoftBank sold them to uh, Nvidia uh, recently, and uh, Intel is obviously a value. Uh, bad instruction uh, story over the past uh, two years and Qualcomm is pretty stagnant and uh, while this happened a player like Taiwan Semiconductors which is the, the how, do, how, do, how, do, how did you describe it like the inverse to this uh, the inverse to this uh, thing yeah the inverse of, of the value chain yeah it's a uh, the most asset he- the most asset heavy business in the world maybe okay it's it need, it needs major constant investments and just to you know keep uh, living and keep uh, keep uh, growing and keep generating uh, returns right but uh, this kind of uh, this kind of characteristics uh, made it like almost uncompetable. You can compete. You can compete with them, and yeah. they took huge, huge uh, market share in the most lucrative uh, parts of the of the semiconductors uh, world, uh, while uh, while uh, making uh, the barriers to entry to uh, to semiconductors and chips design, and chips uh, uh, making, chip custom uh, custom customization, uh, they made things easier to everyone. Like AWS or like uh, Azure made in software, they did it in semiconductor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple can design its own chips for iPhone and just. Six months ago, we you know we we suddenly uh, heard from them that they want to do it for for Mac as well because they have the one semiconductor, which is a one of a kind manufacturer in the field. And it is an, an amazing partner to players like Apple, players like uh, Nvidia, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, it did the exact opposite to what was common knowledge five years ago in semis, that you want to go as a light, you want to go to uh, someone that is uh, you know generating cash, 
doesn't need to reinvest heavily just to uh, keep uh, growing. And it's a very interesting uh, way to think about, I think, uh, about the sector. And uh, I think that uh, a very nice uh, aspect of this uh, event is what happened to uh, another uh, niche in the semis uh, sector and industry that, uh, you know, boomed over the past uh, five years that used to be also a, a bit asset heavy, a bit uh, cyclical. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the, uh, I'm talking about the warfare fabrication equipment Okay. The testing equipment uh, players like uh, applied materials, KLA Tankor, etc. And uh, fortunately, here in Israel, we have a pretty robust uh, semi semi chip uh, sector. Uh, also, in you know the local uh, stock market, because you know Israel um, historically is a major uh, chip hub. Intel is active here. Mm-hmm. Since the 1980s, I think it's the first uh, country outside of the U.S. that Intel uh, is active in, and uh, you know, I think I think that this kind of Taiwan semiconductors they they are not integrated player. I mean, they need help, and they are they went to applied materials, so went to KLA Tanker, they went to. Uh, other, you know, niche players, and there are hundreds of niches in this field, in this testing, for, uh, wafer equipment, for wafer fabrication equipment mm-hmm. uh, niche, and they needed help, and they are more than, you know, more than uh, willing to, to pay for it. And uh, you just see, you just see how the, how the, in this entire value chain, okay, that five years ago, the IP players, the asset players were the most attractive. Um, suddenly, over the past, uh, I think, five or six years, uh, according to applied materials, um, there's 500 uh, base points uh, increase in you know, the market share of uh, the applied materials of the world. Right. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, development, I think. Got it. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a great, a great way to finish the discussion on value chains where you're kind of seeing, I guess, the quote unquote obvious, right, analyzations from, from the value chain perspective, but then also inverting that and seeing like, okay, well, what do we know to be true? And then if we invert that, are there good businesses that meet the opposite criteria where, you know, like, like myself, you and I are similar in that, you know, we really like asset light businesses for the most part, technology businesses that can generate high free cash flow yields over time. And so if you invert that, like you said, can we find asset heavy businesses? Uh, Dennis Hong at Shawspring Partners talks about this where it's, you know, CapEx intensive, but you're, 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 you're building something that creates very high bearish entry because of that capital intensity, um, which is, which is something very fascinating to, to, to kind of think about from a mental models standpoint, but yes. it, I do speaking speaking of technology, I think it's a great time now to just kind of spend the bulk of the rest of the conversation talking about Israel and kind of where you are and Israeli markets and investing in Israeli tech companies. Uh, I'm going to preface this discussion with uh, just a disclaimer that I don't really know anything about the Israeli markets. Um, I've run preliminary screens on companies. I've found some that are very, very interesting. 
Um, very, very, very exciting. I'm hoping to write those in the next couple months after I get through Hong Kong. But um, to start this conversation, what are the most common misconceptions about investing in Israeli businesses that you see from most U.S. investors that don't have, let's say, the boots on the ground um, observations that you have just from living there? Um, no, I, I can't. I can't really, you know, uh, put a finger on like one major, uh, you know, major uh, problem with how American investors uh, see Israel. But uh, I think that over the past twenty years, um, Israeli tech companies, you know, have done uh, pretty good in the U.S. market. And uh, it's not something that started like two years ago with, you know, some flashy IPOs. It's, you, you have legacy software companies uh, from Israel that are doing very good in, in globally and very good in the NASDAQ uh, over the past 20, 25 years. Uh, but uh, until pretty recently, there used to be only uh, backend focused, very boring stuff, you know, like uh, the number one billing software in the world for uh, communications uh, vendors is Amdocs. It's an Israeli company, almost 40 years old. It does it, does it still uh, trade publicly? Yes, yes, DOX. What's the, uh, what's DOX, the, what's the DOX. D-O-X. So okay. uh, this this used to be, you know, the typical uh, Israeli investment. Uh, most of it was, you know, a company that gathered uh, knowledge and gathered uh, talent from uh, from the army, you okay. know, from army from ex-army uh, software uh, players, and from you know we, we have a pretty good. Uh, Academy, academy institutions here uh, in engineering and computer science. Uh, but the whole thing was very boring, very back-end-ish. Okay? Yeah. And um, this is like in the software field. Uh, so I think that a lot of Americans, especially more, uh, you know, one with the 20 years of experience or 15 years of experience, they still look at Israel that way because uh, even here in Israel, you you could always, as an investor, as a, as a capital market player or enthusiast here, you always knew that here in Israel, we are pretty good in building stuff. We're pretty good in starting up, you know, things. Yeah. Uh, we can... Uh, innovate in backend, but uh, Israeli companies. This was like the the major approach, the major saying. But Israeli companies doesn't know how to market. They doesn't know how to scale B two C businesses, uh, and they doesn't know how to scale the front end. And no one will actually uh, will actually uh, rely. Uh, an Israeli uh, company uh, on, you know, like on the on, on the small uh, on SMEs and you know, like uh, the consumer uh, 
uh, they just uh, they won't go there. I mean, yeah, you, it, it's not only that Israel wouldn't have a Google of itself, but Israel wouldn't have even uh, a GoDaddy of itself. And uh, I think that the first company that I mean changed this approach was uh, Wix, okay. uh, that was founded I think in 2005. Yep. Uh, it's a classic uh, B2C and uh, B2 SME uh, business. It's a website uh, builder uh, with almost no knowledge of uh, no, uh, no technical knowledge. You can start your own website. Today, it's like, I think, more than $15 billion market cap company. It was a pioneer in Israel, a pioneer. Also in the sense that, uh, you know, it's centered all of its, uh, all of its activity here, marketing, sales, uh, operation, and it didn't take uh, things uh, entirely to the US and left only R&D here, mm-hmm. which is something the company sometimes uh, used to do. Uh, so uh, you know, it helped them, it helped the entire industry, the entire market to to have like a, the right uh, talent with the right experience, you know, to 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 found and to to help uh, dozens of other companies to to grow. And okay, so this is this is from the software side of things. Uh, there is a major semi semiconductor side of things. As, as we said, uh, Intel uh, relies heavily on Israel over the past uh, 30 years. Uh, back in the 90s, several very important, very, very profitable inter, Intel, uh, <clears throat> Intel uh, initiatives uh, came from Israel, like uh, I think the first Pentium uh, CPU and um, over the years, Intel uh, invested more and more here. The government also uh, put some money uh, to Intel, uh, you know, uh, fans. And uh, Intel, I think, up to up to today, is the largest private employer in Israel. Yes, and uh, Intel these days uh, is a business that has a lot of problems, obviously. But uh, what it did to the Israeli ecosystem is something that uh, you know you you can't uh, look the other way. Um, I think like uh, thousands, thousands of uh, of engineers uh, left Intel and you know and made the. A true ecosystem here, ecosystem here in Israel of uh, semis and semis uh, tools, yeah, and uh, major major knowledge hub. Uh, it works uh, closely with uh, academia, and uh, I think from Intel uh, companies like Mellanox that was bought uh, by Nvidia uh, two years ago. Uh, the founder was an Intel uh, employee. And uh, over the past five years, there's been a very inter- there's a very interesting turn of events here. Uh, the megatechs uh, discovered Israeli uh, powers 
in uh, semis and Amazon bought an Israeli uh, chip startup for its AWS uh, chips mm-hmm. and uh, Apple is investing heavily in, in Israeli uh, semis. <clears throat> um, Israel is a major part of Apple's uh, strategy to you know design uh, its own chips and to make the iPhone and the Mac uh, an integrated uh, product with chips with homemade chips and the most uh, the the most important I think uh, chip figure semis figure in Apple is uh, an Israeli uh, executive named uh, Johnny Sergi mm-hmm. so um, Apple took all of that and has built a, a, a huge uh, Cheap uh, R&D operation here in Israel, and, and taking you know thinking uh, from 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 this uh, standpoint, you you can you can you can look at the Israeli uh, market and you know see uh, some very interesting uh, niche leaders in yeah. the cheap uh, ecosystem and also. Uh, This is from the semi side from uh, the software side over the past three or four years uh, a software and internet boom uh, I think sent like uh, more than 20 uh, IPOs of uh, of uh, front-end companies over the past uh, three years mm-hmm. so uh, you know the Very, very, it's very interesting you know, to, 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 to invest from Tel Aviv uh, these days. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about the cyber security uh, industry, which is a huge industry in Israel, but I have um, not enough knowledge over there. Uh, right. It's very uh, you know, army-centric, and uh, for me, it's, uh, sometimes it's even uh, black. These are black, black boxes for me sometimes, so you know, I don't invest in cyber. Okay, but it's a huge industry here in Israel. So what are some of the ways that investors, whether it's you know local investors like yourself or US-based investors that invest in the um, Israeli market, what are some ways that they get burned? Let's say, um, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily that, you know, it's a fraudulent company or, or there's accounting issues like what you see in, in, in China or maybe some other, um, even U.S. companies like, you know, U.S., if, if, you, if you list in Nevada and you do business anywhere else, it's a little bit suspect. And so you've got some heuristics like that. What are some heuristics that you've developed that might be specific to Israeli markets? You mean uh, what can make you lose money? I mean yeah, from, like maybe uh, maybe, maybe from, not from like a company specific level like making the wrong yes. investment, but just some red flags an that might X be factor an X yes. factor that can you know uh, destroy you. Yep. And it's a good question. I think that uh, the Israeli government uh, is very pro business, especially very pro uh, tech. tech industry and uh, like the entire uh, Californian uh, Californian uh, you know uh, Bonton Valley of uh, yeah Silicon Valley and especially you know Calif- I'm talking about like California the state of California yep uh, Bonton of you know uh, 
talking about uh, megatechs and their problems and you know antitrust issues with the uh, megatechs Facebook Amazon uh, Google etc almost almost uh, can be uh, heard of here in Israel in the government uh, in the government uh, side of things mm-hmm. not in media but in the government and uh, the government is very pro investments and in the second the ITEC uh, field and uh, it invests uh, heavily in uh, talent uh, talent uh, making and talent uh, you know uh, uh, widening widening the talent uh, pool that yeah. I think might be uh, the hardest part uh, for a growing uh, tech company here in Israel I know that uh, you know talent is uh, scarce in, in tech not only in Israel obviously in other places of the world in the US Silicon Valley etc but in Israel being a small market Tel Aviv is small cities <laughs> only it's less than a less less than high thousand residents here in Tel Aviv right and we had more than 20 IPOs over the past two years a billions of dollars of which is a lot like per IPOs. person like per capita yes. that's, yeah, that's a lot yeah, of IPOs yeah. yes it's a lot and not only IPOs and then the startup uh, the startup sector here, especially growth for state startups, uh, have gathered uh, more than $10 billion each of the past, I think, six years, five or six years. And in 2021, more than $15 billion of growth capital, of growth equity, uh, went into the startup ecosystem, startup, not not IPOs, okay? Only in 2021. So, but when you look at the talent pool, yeah, it's growing, but it's not growing that fast, uh, and it's starting to be uh, a problem here. Um, but it also, you know, it also makes them the market more efficient. I think uh, companies are more efficient with their with their uh, you know uh, human capital uh, aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it might be a bigger problem for uh, legacy software companies here, uh, but some of them are still very interesting uh, investments or prospect investments. And, but you know, when salary is going to to the to the, to the roof, it might be a problem for a legacy software company that makes like uh, 45% gross margins like some of these uh, legacy names uh, do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if it, it's, it, it's uh, something that can get, get into your, uh, your uh, you're saying what, what might get you burned here in Israel, uh, because it's not something that you know, falls out of the sky. It's something that is happening like uh, over the years, you know, the talent pool is uh, getting narrowed. But uh, it's an issue here, uh, and obviously you have, you know, the 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 the, the, the um, our you know uh, political and geopolitical uh, situation here. Uh, 
mm-hmm. is always challenging. Yeah. But um, historically, I mean, almost no disruptions over the past, uh, I think, 40 years. Uh, from that standpoint, I know that sometimes you look, uh, you see the news and you might uh, suspect uh, differently, but oh, you, you see major investments, I mean, from the most uh, lucrative uh, corporate investors in the world. Uh, yeah. Google, Salesforce, 800 employees here in the R&D center. I think five M&As, five, uh, <coughs> five deals here over the past uh, decade, Salesforce. Uh, Facebook has a huge R&D center here. Uh, so, th- th- I mean, these guys, they don't do, they don't invest uh, if they think that uh, geopolitical wise, they might get burned. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is our C situation here. Uh, it's exciting because especially- it, makes me, it makes me, it makes me just want to dive into the, dive into the country and dive into the stocks, you know, starting with the A's one by one and just, and just kind of see which businesses are out there. And, and it, and it, and it leads me to kind of this, this, this next question, which is, and you touched on a little bit with, with cybersecurity being exciting, but also being an industry where your circle of competence maybe isn't quite there yet, which I assume is the same for a lot of people, because that is a very big black box in most cases. Um, You know, just look at what Palantir does a lot of stuff in the cybersecurity world, you can't even really disclose. Um, So if you, if you look out three to five years within Israel's market, what are some industries or types of businesses that excite you the most and you could see yourself investing most of your capital in, let's say, a subsection of one to three industries over the next three to five years? Um, you know, I prefer, I prefer to talk about uh, specific names okay. and uh, not, not uh, industries because um, I, see, I don't see tech as an industry today. I see tech... I think that, you know, since software is hitting the world and uh, etc., uh, everything has become uh, tech. And, you know, it, it also what makes tech uh, way more resilient. And we saw that, you know, in 2020 and uh, the COVID, uh, you know, crisis. Uh, tech is everywhere today. It's a cliche and it's true. Uh, so uh, tech is commerce. Tech is... Uh, Tech, uh, tech is, uh, you know, in almost any industry, finance, uh, payments, etc., everywhere. And having said that, uh, I don't invest only in tech. So we might, uh, I might, give, I might give you like two names. Yeah, <laughs> that excites me. One, one of them, one of them is tech. One of them is, uh, is uh, non-tech. Uh, we look uh, these days on. Uh, a very interesting uh, Israeli uh, company, a recent IPO through a uh, SPAC that, uh, you know, the, the name is Talkspace. It's actually a US, uh, US-centered company. What's the ticker? But, uh, talk. Just a T-A-L-K, Talk. Oh, Talkspace. Uh, yeah, that's the, um, yes, yes. that's the meditation uh, therapy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yes, it's a it's a it's a, an emerging brand in the U.S. Yeah. They are a U.S. centric business. They sell right now only in the U.S. 
but uh, the founders and the entire, almost the entire C-suit uh, team are Israelis. Uh, the founders have a very interesting uh, story. It's a couple. Oren Frank is a CEO and his wife, Ronnie Frank, is, uh, I think, the quality, uh, quality standards executive over there. And uh, they struggled. They struggled a lot to, uh, you know, found this, uh, this business. It's a platform that uh, connects between more than 3,000 uh, therapy specialists, licensed therapy specialists, uh, I mean, mental therapy, right. uh, like psychologists or uh, other kinds of, uh, you know, therapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, to consumers, you know, most of them are getting a psychological uh, treatment in talk space for the first time of their life. Yep, the price is uh, very very affordable compared to uh, what it costs to get to an actual uh, shrink, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously, you know, it's 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 a cl- I think. When you, when you think about Talkspace, it, it sounds like classic IAC, you know, IAC interactive uh, business. Yeah. So, something that takes a huge, uh, a huge niche from offline to online. And then when you think about it, you getting to understand that why wasn't it online before? Because it's right. a classic uh, niche to be uh, online. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Talkspace uh, started as a, you know, a voice and video uh, centered uh, service. <clears throat> but uh, five or six years ago, they uh, pivoted. They pivoted into uh, messaging. And these days, most of the service is uh, through uh, messaging. Okay. Uh, and it put them in a whole different uh, level in the market because, you know, suddenly the consumer and the caregiver uh, can connect in their own time uh, and can connect how in the way people connect these days, uh, which is messaging. We took over uh, everything in uh, daily communications. And personally, you know, I hate speaking in the phone and uh, I prefer messaging. Yeah, and I think that a lot, of, a lot of millennials like me are, you know, the same. And obviously Gen Zs are uh, way more, uh, you know. I mean, they prefer uh, the Snapchat videos, 30, the, the, the 10 second video clips to each other more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but it's not it's not only on uh, on a convenient and price level. It's also, and I think uh, this is where you really you can really start talking about the moat. It's uh, in uh, you know in data because hmm. my wife is actually a PhD has a PhD in psychology. So okay, <laughs> I uh, you know I kind of uh, familiar with the with you know the field from. An outsider, an outsider, obviously, but uh, still, um, the clinical psychology uh, field is 
I mean, the day-to-day -day treatment uh, is uh, not data-centered enough yeah. these days, still. And uh, obviously it's very hard, you know, you're, you're a therapist and you sit in front of a patient, you don't have like someone, uh, some system that just give you insights and tells you and give you like uh, approaches that you can take with this patient. It's not that, it's not how the way it works. You know, you sit with a patient for 15 minutes and uh, you use your, uh, you use your, uh, your diploma and your uh, experience and et cetera to do, to help them as much as you can. But uh, it's an offline industry in yes. all senses. And Talkspace, uh, is uh, is a platform. I mean, it is a real platform, not a, a cliche platform. It uh, uh, uses huge amount of uh, text data, you know, to understand what works and what doesn't work, and uh, uh, always creating and always innovating. YouTube's uh, mm -hmm. to its uh, to its community of. Uh, of uh, therapists, and uh, they're only getting started in this field. Uh, they are uh, combining with uh, academia in the States, and, and it's very important for them to, <coughs> to uh, research and to uh, show that uh, their service is truly helping. Right. Uh, Consumers, they have like uh, surveys and data and research that uh, says that more than sixty-five percent of uh, consumers are, you know, uh, gaining uh, momentum, positive momentum in their mental health, hmm. and uh, still, still very early. They are still very early in their uh, journey. Yeah. Obviously, it's a huge market. Uh, they will make like a 125 uh, million dollars of revenue uh, in 2021. Mm -hmm. And gross margins, you you could you could suspect the gross margins won't be that great right now because uh, they have a lot of uh, building them to do in you know the operational side, the regulation side. Uh, marketing, etc. Right. But uh, gross margins are actually pretty good, 64, 65%, huh. and uh, getting better. And uh, take all of that, and you know, it's a company that uh, grow, that grew uh, like uh, I think 60, more than 60% during uh, 2020 COVID. And uh, right now it's like seven times uh, revenues. Yeah. yeah, I think and, uh, I think I think what's interesting there is, um, and, and just sorry to cut you off, but but I wanna I want I wanna get your thoughts on this. Um, from a from a competitive advantage perspective, it sounds like the therapy and the mental health industry from a from a clinical psychologist to like a call it a clinical psychologist to patient relationship, um, that has the potential to create tremendous stickiness. Right. Because if you're used to talking with, say, one therapist and they're on the talk space platform, 
and they don't use another another platform. And you know, I don't I, I, I don't know how that goes where, you know, maybe clinical psychologists can use different platforms or maybe they just are locked into one. But if you've got a if you've got a psychologist that you know that you have history with, it's way harder than to make that switch to something else, even if it's cheaper, even if it's more convenient, because then yes. there's an element where let's say even if you have the data, right? Even if you have that data on that person, on their history, on, you know, those those types of meetings that you've had and notes about that stuff, you don't have that relationship and you almost have to start over. And that's a huge hurdle. So what's what's attractive to me about Talkspace is the idea that you can kind of create a very sticky customer base um, with long lifetime values because you develop relationships and it's very hard to start a new relationship in that environment where you're being vulnerable, you're opening up, you're talking about things that make you uncomfortable. And so um, it's just, it's, 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 it's fascinating from that perspective. Yes, uh, exactly. I mean, it's one of the most, I uh, think, uh, addicting services, but addicting, I think, most of the time in a good way. If you have the resources, uh, I personally haven't, uh, you know, haven't went to, uh, you know, to a psychologist treatment uh, in my life. I didn't, I didn't think I need to, but uh, to a lot of people, it, it makes uh, really good, you know, to, 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 to use that uh, service if they have the resources. Mm-hmm. And uh, Talkspace let you, uh, gives you like a, a legacy level of service in uh, way lower price prices. Yep way more approachable and uh, when you start it's easy to uh, continue to continue this uh, service it, these days i mean the the, the pricing model is a, a year a monthly uh, subscription so uh, it's way uh, it's, it's way uh, easier for for consumers, you know, to, to, to truly have a, a meaningful uh, impact through on themselves, on their well-being, through a, through a psychology treatment, uh, because mm-hmm. it's where it is way more approachable uh, through a price and through accessibility. You know, it's right. a messaging uh, platform that works uh, exactly how you want to co- to communicate. In the day, in 2021, and um, when you when you are able, I mean, to to, to gather a customer, to gather a consumer, uh, it is very reasonable to think that you probably earned it for for years. Uh, having said that, uh, Talkspace doesn't uh, give uh, lifetime value of users. Right. Okay. So yeah, they don't. They don't give that. Uh, we are still figuring uh, why they don't give that. But uh, you know, looking at uh, their uh, predictions, uh, they're predicting to become uh, profitable, uh, EBITDA-wise, and even very profitable, like two years. It's not. It's not. It's not a business that. Tells you that uh, in five or six years the profits will start to, to show. Right. So uh, the probably see uh, good data in that uh, standpoint. And uh, it's important to say that they're not the only player in the market. I mean, Teladoc is the second uh, largest player. 
they bought a company that does uh, like uh, similar uh, services uh, five or six years ago. Actually, the CEO of the Teladoc uh, you know, segment is actually also Israeli. Huh. Um, I don't know <laughs> why, uh, but uh, <laughs> Israelis uh, seems to you know, be present very in the, in the space. Yeah. And I think with what makes it interesting from evaluation standpoint, uh, it's uh, pretty uh, broken. Uh, SPAC IPO, uh, probably because of the, uh, you know, the pipe uh, investors that, uh, you know, uh, abandoned the shift uh, pretty fast. Sometimes it happens. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, just looking, looking, you know, where, where it is today uh, from evaluation standpoint, from the price standpoint, and knowing what we know about the business after recent training, it's a, it's a very compelling opportunity in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's exciting. Something that I, you know, put on my watch list and, and we'll hopefully get to it. Uh, rel- relatively soon i've got i've got a long watch list of of of, of companies which i guess is a good problem yes, to have um, yes, i want to, i want to close you know obviously before we go into our closing questions just uh some ideas on topics that are consuming you currently whether it's you know books that you can't put down articles that 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 you find interesting um are there are there any topics or ideas that are just consuming your day-to-day where you you know can't stop thinking about them walking the dog eating dinner you just you just can't you just can't get them out of your mind um are there are there any of those um well i actually i i really you know i really inside i'm really finding myself getting deeper and deeper inside you know what faith what facebook is doing uh, but it's not like only from from an investment standpoint. It's also from a product standpoint, from a vision standpoint. I think it's uh, remarkable. So uh, business-wise, uh, you know, it takes uh, um, probably too much <laughs> from, my, uh, from my time because you know I already I already own the stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, these days, you know. I, I find myself actually <laughs> watching the Olympics a lot, and yeah, me too. Uh, you know, getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, inspiration and uh, what uh, what we see over there. And a huge sport fan, so uh, a lot of inspiration I get there. And, and uh, you know, some some of the <laughs> some of it we try to to bring to uh, our professional. Feel, mm-hmm. but um, you know, investment-wise, I think that uh, studying what Facebook is doing business-wise, uh, it might be it can be very uh, can be can be very profitable to an up-and-comer an, an up-and-comer uh, investor. Yeah, and and. You know, company-wise, we look at uh, several new things. One of them is stock space, and it's 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 I think it's it's a pretty decent uh, area to invest in. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a blue market, etc. But uh, 
the divergence of uh, pricing, the divergence of uh, opinions, creates uh, still very compelling opportunities. And uh, it's amazing to think about because, you know, interest, interest rates are pretty much zero. Um, everyone is talking about stocks, Twitter, the media outlets, etc. And still, mm -hmm. lots of uh, quality names are still very reasonable priced. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an environment that, uh, you know, I'm enjoying to 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 to, to be and to 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 act on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Awesome. I mean, I love I love watching the Olympics and you know whether it's tennis, table tennis, uh, the racket. The racket sports are super fascinating. And then obviously you've got weightlifting and 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 volleyball. I mean, I could I could sit there and and yes. and, and and watch it all day. Uh, do you Israel, have a favorite? Do you have a favorite sport? Israel actually took uh, its second all-time gold medal uh, yesterday. Okay. In uh, gymnastics. Yes. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge inspiration. We know it's only <laughs> over the past 24 hours, it's what we, uh, it's what we are focused, <laughs> focused on. That's awesome. So, that is, that is, that yes. is terrific. Um, so closing questions I've got uh, for you, Omri. Uh, first, where can people go to find more about you? I know that you've got Legacy Value Partners, and I know you've got your personal Twitter. Um, so if you could just tell the audience where they can go follow you. Cause again, I think you're at, I want to say like a shade over 2000 followers, which is just criminal. Um, and <laughs> I want to change that. So where can people go to find more about you? Yes. Uh, English outlets, obviously, uh, are uh, my Twitter account and the legacy Twitter account. Uh, also, uh, my LinkedIn, English and uh, yeah, other I mean other outlets are enabled, so I think it's less relevant to your uh, listeners. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think Twitter, obviously, you know that. I mean, you 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 are also a Twitter enthusiast. But uh, what Twitter did to uh, quality of research, the quality of uh, collaboration that you can achieve as an investor, really remarkable. I'm, I'm not, I know I, I had like a debate, I think like uh, six months ago with other Twitter uh, users, uh, which is, which one is the most, uh, is the most uh, unique field in Twitter, unique, uh, sector on Twitter with got benefit from, you know, uh, Twitter existence. And I uh, think that the FinTweet, finance, uh, Twitter is by far uh, the most unique, but I have a friend uh, he's a, a programmer and he's saying that, you know, Twitter is huge for computer science. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> and obviously for media, uh, for journalists, etc. But, uh, what Twitter did for me, uh, from a research standpoint, from uh, you know uh, expanding my uh, my investment reach, my investment uh, powers, uh, <clears throat> it's something that uh, cannot be cannot be put into just the numbers or etc. Uh, personally, I always when people like ask me, 
what is my strategy, how to, I don't know, emulate me, how to uh, maybe, uh, you know, young, younger investors, they want to get in, they want to maybe start their own fund. I, one of the first thing I say, just go to my following list and yep. follow the same, uh, the same, uh, the same users, people, the same yep. accounts. Yeah. Because I curated it, uh, I think, pretty good over the past uh, three or four years, uh, and it's it's just out there. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's free and out there, and uh, awesome, just awesome. Yeah, sweet. And then last question I've got, which I ask everybody on this show, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Um. Yeah, good question. Michael Jordan, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, um, you know, just just one of a kind uh, personality and uh, one of a kind uh, charismatic figure and. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm a huge fan uh, since my childhood, and uh, I think it's fascinating uh, to learn from and to uh, and and the, the level of excitement of excitement that you should bring me mm -hmm. uh, put it all together. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, for me, it's pretty obvious. Michael Jordan. Awesome. Sounds good. Omri, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know people are going to get a lot of value out of this, and I hope that you inspire others like you've inspired myself to look at the Israeli market and really really give it a fair shake and um, think about putting some capital to work over there. Um, so I appreciate all that you do on the Twitter thanks, community to kind of help that out, and uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank you for the pleasure.